welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, Pastor of Outreach here at LMPC, and this is a Pillar and Ground Confession episode. In our Confession episodes, we seek to understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Today, we're turning our attention to Chapter 3 of the Confession on God's Eternal Decree, and we'll be looking at Paragraphs 1 and 2 together. Before we jump into this chapter, it may be helpful to briefly recap what the Confession has covered so far, because I think that's actually going to help us understand what we're covering today. So, by way of reminder, in Chapter 1, the Confession begins with Holy Scripture. That may, even as we were studying it, that may strike you as odd. Uh, this Isn't this theology, the study of God? Why would the Confession start with the Bible and not God? But what the Westminster Divines are highlighting by starting with Scripture is that anytime we begin making claims about God, we're immediately confronted with a problem. What is our source of all this information? On what authority do we make these claims about God? How do we know about Him what we are saying we know about Him? It turns out the answer is much in the same way that we learn anything about anyone. How do you know something uh, about anyone? They reveal it to you. We get to know another person as they tell us about themselves, as they reveal themselves to us. In the same way, the confession tells us, we know about God because he has revealed himself to us. He has done that in creation, and this is what theologians call general revelation. As Paul says in Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And a verse later, he adds that God has shown it to them where? in the things that have been made. What Paul is saying is you can't look at the stars in the night sky without thinking, I think something more is going on here. But the confession points out this general revelation of God doesn't tell us everything we need to know about him. After all, many have looked at the creation and recognized that there must be a God, but not necessarily the same God that we worship. So that raises the question, on what basis can we make the claim that the God we worship, the triune God, is the one true God? Well, we believe that God chose to reveal more of himself through what theologians call special revelation. The doctrine of special revelation is best summarized in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. So the author of Hebrews tells us God revealed himself through the prophets and through his son, Jesus Christ, the record of which we have in the Bible. So the Bible is God's self-revelation to us, and therefore it's our authority for any claims that we make about him. So that was chapter one of the confession of the Holy Scripture. Chapter two then proceeds with the question, okay, so what does this Bible tell us about who God is? And so chapter two is of God and of the Holy Trinity. And hopefully you listened to those episodes where we learned about what God is like. And now in chapter three, the confession moves from the question of who God is and what he is like to what the scriptures teach us about God's connection to everything else that is not God. How did everything that is come to be? And the confession reminds us of what scripture teaches. Everything that has come to pass finds its origin in God's eternal decree. Nothing is outside of God's plan. That is where the first sentence of chapter 3 begins, and I'll just read it for us. God, from all eternity, did, 
by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. The Bible is clear that our God is a God of order, who is sovereign over all things. Psalm 33:11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46, 9-11 reads, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11, In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's just a few verses there, but the confession says that the scripture is full of these types of passages, and it's very clear about God's decree and the universal scope of it. Whatever has come to pass, whatever is, God has decreed it. His decree covers everything. This includes things like the weather and natural events, all of the events of human history, even our individual lives, including sin and salvation. And so it's one thing for us to say that. Where do we actually see these things in Scripture? Of course, we don't have time to walk through every passage that mentions these things, but just a few representative verses as we think about all that God's decree encompasses. Psalm 135, 6 and 7 tells us of God's control over the natural world. The psalmist writes, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Acts 17.26 makes clear that God's control extends to, to human histories, the rise and fall of nations. Luke writes, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God's decree even extends to the boundaries of our countries. The Bible also tells us that it extends to our individual lives. The prophet Samuel's mother Hannah recognizes this in 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7, when she prays, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. As we think about our individual lives, we might also think of What Jesus said, that not a hair can fall from our heads apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. James goes on to affirm God's sovereign control over our lives in James 4, 13 through 16. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So God's sovereign decree 
extends to control over the, the small details of our lives, but it also extends, the scripture tells us, to matters of sin and salvation. Two really clear examples where God is sovereign, even over the actions of sinful men. The, the first one, I invite you to remember the story of Joseph in the final chapters of Genesis. If you remember the story, Joseph's resentful brothers sell him into slavery, and they tell their father that he has died. And as the story unfolds, Joseph ends up second in command over all of Egypt, and God uses him to get the land through a famine. There's a dramatic scene in Genesis 45 where Joseph's brothers, who sold him into slavery, come face to face with him. Having thought they would never see him again, they see him now in a position of great power over them, and they're terrified. And he tells them in verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 45, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Then later in chapter 50, after their father dies, Joseph's brothers are worried that maybe now he will be tempted to take vengeance now that their father has died. And Joseph reassures them again that it was all a part of God's plan. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So Joseph tells his brothers, there's, there's been an evil action, one evil action, the brother's intent to dispose of him by selling him off into slavery. But that one evil action had two purposes. The brothers meant their act for evil, but God ordained their evil act for his own good purposes. We see this same dynamic even more clearly at the cross. In his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter says in verses 22 and 23, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, do not miss what Peter's saying there. He says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God decreed it. It was all a part of his plan. But Peter also says that Jesus was killed by the hands of lawless men. It was sinful that they crucified Jesus. It was wrong. And yet, somehow, it was all a part of God's definite plan. They meant it for evil, and of course, God meant it for the greatest good the world has ever known. We're going to consider the connection between God's decree and salvation in, in great detail in the next two episodes, so we're going to put a pin in that for the moment, and think about a few questions that may have arisen for you as we were talking, because I think it's natural as we hear that God ordained whatsoever comes to pass to have some questions. Doesn't that make God the author of sin? I mean, if he is the source of everything, if he's decreed everything, everything that's come to pass, and sin and evil certainly have come to pass, doesn't that mean God's responsible for that? I thought he was holy and blameless. And what about human freedom? If God has decreed everything that's come to pass, even the small details of our lives, are we really free at all? Are we just puppets on the ends of God's strings? And if all of this has been planned and decided before the foundation of the earth, 
what's the point of some really important things in the Christian life, like prayer or evangelism? Why pray for our friends who are sick? Hasn't it already been decided what's going to happen? Why share the gospel with our neighbors? It's already been decided. It's a done deal. They'll believe or they won't. These are all great questions, and it's here that we need to return to paragraph one of chapter three and pick up where we left off. After saying that God has unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass, the confession reads, Yet he ordered all things in such a way that he is not the author of sin, nor does he force his creatures to act against their wills. Neither is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So in that important sentence, the confession provides three important guardrails on our understanding of the eternal decree. The first guardrail, God has ordained all things, but in such a way that he is not the author of sin. Even as the scriptures tell us that God has ordained all things, we cannot forget what else they tell us. So 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. James 1.13 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the confession holds these two things in tension. Even as God has decreed all things, even sinful actions, even the presence of evil in this world, he has done that in such a way that he is not the author of sin. The second guardrail the confession provides on our understanding of the eternal decree, God has ordained all things, yet in such a way that he does not force his creatures to act against their wills. What the scriptures tell us is that God is sovereign, and yet in a very real way, we are free and still responsible for our actions. Just as a side note, we're going to spend a lot more time trying to understand that idea when we get to chapter 9 of the confession of free will. So uh, put a pin in that as well for when those episodes come around. The third and final guardrail the confession provides on our understanding of the eternal decree is that God has ordained all things, yet in such a way that he still uses what the confession calls secondary causes. As Chad Van Dixhorn writes, God has decided the end from the beginning, but the middle still matters. It still matters because God not only decides what will happen in the end, but how it will happen. Dr. Van Dixhorn then provides a a helpful example. Consider how God decided to save sinners. He specifically decided to save sinners by Jesus Christ. So after that decision was made, many other things had to happen. Because God had decreed to save sinners through the mediator Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ really did need to be born and suffer on the cross and rise again from the dead. He had to be holy in everything that he did. Every step along the way had to happen. The reality and necessity of those events are not removed by God's decree. In fact, they themselves are established by God's decree. The reality and necessity of those events are not removed by God's decree. In fact, they themselves are established by God's decree. So to return for a moment to the questions of of prayer and evangelism, we could say that the answer to the question, why pray or share the gospel, could simply be, well, because God commands it. And that's true. But I think the doctrine of God's eternal decree actually gives us even more incentive. We can boldly pray 
and share the gospel because of what the confession tells us here, that God has ordained the ends and the means, those secondary causes. He has ordained what will happen and how it will happen. And in his kindness, God brings us into the process. He uses our prayers and uses our evangelism. So rather than discouraging us, the doctrine of God's eternal decree ought to embolden our prayers and evangelism. Because God knows what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. But it's important to say, we don't. We don't know how God is going to work. As as David writes in Psalm 139, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And here's the key sentence. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David says that God knows everything about him before even a word is on his tongue. And David acknowledges this knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is, it is too high. I cannot get to it. God's ways are not our ways. And so we should pray and evangelize because who knows how the Lord might use it. It might be that the conversation you've been putting off with your neighbor is the very one that God ordained from the foundation of the earth to be the means by which his Holy Spirit opens their eyes and brings them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God's eternal decree ought to give us great confidence in our prayers and efforts to share the gospel, because if God has ordained their success, then they cannot fail. And if, after making our best efforts, God chooses in the mystery of the divine will not to make our efforts successful, we can still trust his eternal plan knowing that we were obedient to his command. The second paragraph of chapter 3 answers a common attempt to try and reconcile God's divine decree with man's free will. And it's important to note here, many are uncomfortable with the idea that God's decree would include who is saved and, and who isn't. And yet, most people recognize the word predestination is clearly used in the Bible in places like Ephesians 1 and 2. So, in an effort to reconcile the idea of predestination with our free will, you'll often hear people say something like, Well, what predestination means is that God looks down the corridor of time and he foresees those who will freely choose him and then he predestines them to be saved. And so here is what the confession has to say about that in the second paragraph of chapter three. Although God knows whatever may or can come to pass under all conceivable conditions, yet he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass under such conditions. The confession rules out the possibility that God decrees something merely because he foresaw it as future. And the reason that this is important, there are a few reasons, but one is that if that were true, that God looks ahead and sees what we will freely choose and then decrees it, that would mean that God is bound by our decisions. And as we saw in chapter 2, God is entirely free. This is also important because if it were true that God predestines us based upon what he foresaw we would do, that would mean that our salvation and God's decree of it are completely dependent upon the working of our free will. And the scriptures are clear. Salvation is a gift from God. It's not a work. It's not something that he owes us because of what he foresaw we would choose. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As John reminds us in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. So that means God's decree to save us is not dependent upon our freely choosing him. Rather, our freely choosing him is contingent and dependent upon his decree to save us. We're going to pause there for now as the next two sections of the confession will drill down even further on questions of God's decree and salvation. But for now, you may still have many questions. How can it be true both that God sovereignly decrees all things and we are truly free? The confession does not tell us how these things can be true, only that the scriptures teach them both. And that brings us back around to where we began this episode. Uh, that the confession began with the scriptures. What the confession is trying to teach us is what the scriptures teach, and not necessarily all of the intricate details of how that will work. As far as God's sovereignty and our freedom goes, perhaps an example will help. In much the same way that scientists tell us that light is both a particle and a wave, we might wonder, well, how could that be true? And it's true as we look at the science of this that we actually aren't completely sure. All we know is that when light is observed one way, it appears to be a particle. And when observed a different way, it appears to be a wave. Both of these seemingly contradictory things are true, even if we can't yet explain how. It's important to recognize that just because we cannot conceive how something may be true does not mean that there is not a way for it to be true. If God is truly as high and sovereign as the Bible tells us that he is, is it not possible that there is a way for this to be true that is beyond our ability to conceive. This brings us to a verse that I suspect we will quote a lot in the coming weeks, and I will close as we think on it. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. How God's eternal decree works in all of its intricacies and details is a secret thing that belongs to the Lord but it is a thing that has been revealed in his holy scriptures. And so for that reason, it belongs to us and to our children forever. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you'll join us again soon.